Before I introduce today's guest, I want to tell you about our sponsor of our podcast, uh, The Great Courses Plus. This is the teaching companies, The Great Courses, which I've been listening to for decades. They have thousands of uh, professionally produced college courses or courses taught by college professors, the best in the country. And they, they've introduced a uh, app for your phone. It's thegreatcoursesplus.com. And uh, so you just touch the app and you open up the course you want to listen to. The one I just started this week is on uh, Understanding the Old Testament by Professor Robert D. Miller II. So um, just to give you an idea of how it works, you just touch on the lecture you want to listen to. Like number one is the Old Testament is literature. Number two is the Genesis creation story. I'm right now on uh, chapter lecture three, what God intended for Adam and Eve. Oh boy, this should be interesting. In any case, this is great because you can skip around. If I find one of the lectures boring, I just skip to the next one. Uh, you can do it on audio or video and all from your phone. It's, it's a terrific way to consume content, particularly during social isolation. During the pandemic, it's a great way to become an autodidact. So if you want to know more, you can if you sign up through uh, my podcast, uh, then you get um, a free trial. So go to... Uh, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash salon. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash salon. And you get a free trial with uh, free access to the entire library of all these hundreds and hundreds of courses and thousands of lectures. So with that, I'll introduce my next guest. My guest today is the author of False Alarm, Bjorn Lomborg. How climate change panic costs us trillions, hurts the poor, and fails to fix the planet. Most of you will know who Bjorn Lomborg is. He's uh, widely read in this area. He's the best-selling author of The Skeptical Environmentalist and Cool It. He's a visiting professor at Copenhagen Business School and at the Hoover Institution in Stanford. His work appears regularly in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, The Atlantic, and Forbes. His monthly column appears in around 40 newspapers in 19 languages, with more than 30 million readers. In 2011 and 2012, Lomborg was named Top 100 Global Thinker by Foreign Policy. In 2008, he was named one of the 50 people who could save the planet by The Guardian, and he lives in Prague. So um, Bjorn and I talk about um, whether global warming is, well, we don't talk about whether global warming is real and human caused. He thinks it is and starts with that, that premise as he writes, climate change is real. It is caused predominantly by carbon emissions from humans burning fossil fuels, and we should tackle it intelligently. All right. So he's not a climate denier, not even remotely close. Uh, so we go into um, comparing that as an ex so-called existential threat, that is climate change to the uh, artificial intelligence threat, nuclear weapons, pandemics, and other human problems. Um, we look at um, some of the sort of hot-button issues, deforestation, what about the polar bears, sixth extinction, AOC and Greta Thunberg, uh, droughts, hurricanes, extreme weather. And then we go into the solutions. First of all, there's the non-solutions like kinds of things you and I can do individually don't seem to do much. It really is a kind of collective action problem. And therefore, things like carbon taxes, innovation, adaptation, geoengineering, and especially prosperity. You want people to care about the environment, you got to get them out of poverty. So um, we go through all these um, different hot button issues. I think it's really a great book. I really enjoyed it. 
I think uh, this rational approach to solving problems is way better than moralizing uh, about things that are bad. Uh, we can make much more human progress that way. So with that, I give you Bjorn Lomborg. This is your host, Michael Shermer, and you're listening to Science Salon, a series of conversations with leading scientists, scholars, and thinkers about the most important issues of our time. This was my first book, Why People Believe Weird Things. Oh, cool. Yeah, 1997, so that's almost 25 years ago, and my publicist was a woman named Sloan Letter. <laughs> wow. Yeah, cool. and uh, so that in 1998, she called me and said, I have a book for you. It's called The Skeptical Environmentalist. I went, oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> really? That, wow. That's right up my uh, wow. alley, and uh, so that's how I brought you to Caltech. In 19, yeah, I guess yeah, that yeah. was late 98 when, when you were touring for that book. And, um, and I'll never forget ago. this. I, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but, you know, when she sent that to me and I read it, and I thought, okay, this, this guy's voice has got to be heard. It's at, at least there's some debatable points. And I could not get anybody to debate, uh, debate you at Caltech. And, oh. and, uh, and, and it wasn't that they didn't feel prepared. It was like, um, it's not a debate. There's nothing to debate. I said, nothing. Yeah. Nothing to debate? Come on. I mean, he's not a denier. He's not claiming global warming isn't real at all. And uh, I even called uh, Paul Ehrlich, you know, the population oh, bomb guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, he was not at all pleased about even having a conversation about the possibility of debating you. He just said, basically, if you do this, Michael, this will ruin your career. It's like, okay, I'm definitely going to do it. <laughs> wow. Yes, yes. That's... Uh... And so I ended up yeah. having you, um, uh, well, I had uh, Frank Mealy, my uh, environmental editor, who, who kind of specializes in evolutionary theory. And I think you guys mainly focused on extinction rates and things like that. But to me, that was a real eye-opener, because in the 70s, when I was in college, this is when all this you know, climate talk started with the environmental movement. And by the 80s, there were all these doomsday predictions. You know, the rainforest would yeah. all be gone by the late 80s, and all these precious minerals, and 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 so forth would would run out and the prices would be staggering and, and billions of people would die of starvation such that by the 90s i thought you know what none of that happened so yep. there's something to be skeptical of here and uh that's uh, where you yes, come in that's, very much so that's kind of where you come into the picture so your new book just to introduce it properly is here's the audio version <laughs> which i listened cool. to it's a great read it's a false alarm how climate change panic costs us trillions hurts the poor and fails to fix the planet. So, well, let's just go right up front here, just in case people think you're uh, still think you're a climate denier. You write at the beginning of your book, climate change is real. It is caused predominantly by carbon emissions, carbon emissions from humans burning fossil fuels, and we should tackle it intelligently. But to do that, we need to stop exaggerating, stop arguing that it is now or never, and stop thinking climate is the only thing that matters. <laughs> so let's start there. What, uh, you know, in 22 years since your first book came out, how have you seen the, the, you know, the kind of the public debate and discussion over this subject evolve? So I think a lot of what you just talked about with, uh, you know, all, all the way back from the 70s, there's a sense in which it's just come back with a vengeance. I'm not, I, I didn't, or at least I didn't feel like I lived through the intellectual part of the uh, of the 1970s. But my my sense is, Right now, everybody is scared. They're scared witless. 
both kids, you know, uh, the the whole protest movement that we saw last year, uh, all these all these kids that literally say, "Why should I study for a future I won't have?" Uh, well, uh, Washington Post uh, did a survey of of, uh, of all teenagers in the U.S. found fifty seven percent are alarmed about climate change, and likewise, when you ask adults. Uh, so YouGov did a survey of uh, adults in 28 countries. They found an average 48% of all adults in the world now believe it's likely that global warming will lead to human extinction. Wow. Not just problems, but human extinction. When you think that all our kids are or a very large part of our kids are scared, when almost half the world's population believe that this is going to lead to the end of the world. Clearly, what that means is you're willing to throw a lot of money at this and you know, the whole shebang and the kitchen sink. And that makes sense if this really was true. But of course, if it's not, we also need to know. And my point here is simply to say, look, it turns out that there is no good evidence for this level of alarm. You should certainly be concerned about climate change like you should be concerned about a lot of other things, but you should not be alarmed to this extent. This is a false alarm. And that's, of course, why I wrote this book. It's a problem, not the end of the world. Yeah. Yeah, I think we should drill down on that point because there's a lot of so-called existential risks that uh, people are writing about now, not just climate change, but also the AI apocalypse is coming with artificial intelligence, nuclear weapons are still around, and now, of course, pandemics. Uh, none of which it's hard to see how any of these could lead to an actual extinction. I mean, every last person dead? I mean... It's one thing to talk about, well, this could cost us money or it could you know, cause harm or something like that. But it's like with, with the nuclear weapons, even if ISIS you know, smuggled in a, a, a small nuke in New York City and, and, and detonated it and killed a million people, this would be catastrophic. But you, you know, the president of the United States is not going to hand the keys over to the White House and say, well, that's it. We're done. <laughs> you know, much yeah. less you know, kill every last person on Earth. Uh, so we have to distinguish between you know, things that could be harmful versus the extinction. And, and, I, and I think... You know what you're one point you're addressing here is that um, the alarmism comes from this idea that every last person or the end of civilization, these kinds of things are not helpful. Yeah, I I, I think the because <laughs> uh, somebody pointed out that uh, when um, one of those fact check things uh, did on Bernie Sanders and said you said it was an existential risk, like every last person on the planet would die. But not every last person will die. Well, somehow that's not a great, you know, if, if there are like three people left, that still feels <laughs> like a really big problem. Yeah. I, I, I think the idea here is not to say it's not just not the end of the world, but it's not even close to that. Yeah. We're, we're possibly talking about a problem. And, and, you know, just to give you a sense of proportion, that's also some of the numbers I use in the book. Uh, the UN Climate Panel estimate that when we reach two degrees higher than what we are today in, in Celsius, so around the 2070s, the average impact, the average net impact, which will be negative, that's why global warming is a problem, will be somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of income. It's going to be equivalent to that. So you're going to feel just as many problems as if you were two, or sorry, somewhere between 0.2 and 2% poor. That's a problem. But let's just remember the UN climate panel also estimate that by then, each one of us will be 2.63 times richer than we are today. So in reality, what they're saying is instead of us being 2.63 times richer, we will only be 2.56 times <laughs> richer. Now, that is a problem. 
but it's not the end of the world. And I think most people have it in their heads that in 50 years, you know, uh, we're going to see those dystopian uh, futures that we that we used to see in films and skyscrapers broken and all kinds of terrible things. But no, we're going to be much richer, but slightly less much richer in 2070s. Yeah. That's a very different setup. And I think it matters a lot, both for our sanity and obviously for our kids, but it also matters for how we actually tackle global warming. Because if it's a real problem, but not the end of the world, we can stop throwing everything at it and start throwing smart money at it to fix it, but not fix it in a way that's actually going to cost us a fortune or, as we're doing right now, cost a fortune, but actually not even managing to fix it. Yeah, people seem to invoke the precautionary principle that, you know, just in case, even even though I, I get your skepticism, just in case. Well, it's not like we have unlimited resources that we can throw at the one thing. There's half a dozen, maybe a dozen different things that we should care about. Not not to mention Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement. There's all kinds of things that, that we care about. Um, and there's not unlimited resources. So what you're arguing is that we have to do a kind of a triage where we have to make hard decisions about where we're going to spend our money most efficiently. Um, and, and so you're, that's why your data in the book is so important, I think, for making those calculations. By the way, we should also note um, to the listeners that uh, your data source, the numbers you get, this is from Fox News, Sean Hannity's crack team of researchers, right? <laughs> uh, no, no. So, you know, most of this data is from the UN Climate Panel. That was what I just told you. The UN Climate Panel are the authors of this 02 to 2% uh, reduction in, in income. Look, this doesn't mean that they are infallible, but it certainly means that this is not just something that I've handpicked out of a, of, of a vast number of, of, of data that's uh, available. I also use a lot of the best numbers that we have for the U.S. because it is a very U.S.-focused book. Uh, so the National Climate Assessment that the U.S. Has, has done now in its fourth row, uh, the last one was the one that was finished pretty much under Obama but was published uh, during uh, uh, the Trump administration. These are all sources that pretty much everyone agree with. And again, look, you can have different approaches, and certainly there are some of these things that you can somewhat disagree with. You know, for instance, what is the right discount rate? How do we evaluate the fact of risks of catastrophe and those kinds of things? That's fine. But my point is not on the slight changes that you can reasonably uh, discuss. It's much more about getting the big picture right. And I think we fail to get the big picture right because we're so scared, because we constantly hear these stories that are just simply incredibly misleading. Yeah. Uh, let me just give you one example because it's, you know, it, it's, it's one of those strong points that I also, also mentioned in the book. Uh, last year, uh, Washington Post and many other uh, uh, news outlets, both in the US across the world, told us that because of global warming, you'll see sea level rise, which is absolutely true. Uh, sea levels rise because oceans, when they get warmer, expand just like everything else. So this is a real problem. But then they said, that will lead to 187 million people having to move by the end of the century. Now, and, and a lot of them then went a little further and said that they'll actually drown, which of course is untrue because you have 80 years to move. Uh, but what they failed to tell you was this assumes that over the next 80 years, nobody does anything. That is, we just sit here and the waves start lapping up over our knees and then our hips and then you know, eventually we can't breathe and we've got to move. But the reality, of course, is that's never how humans have been going about this. 
we will actually adapt. And much of that adaptation, especially when uh, it's a very expensive territory like New York, or Miami, and many other places, we'll simply put up seawalls. We will plan just like Holland has done, and we will actually prevent almost all of that flooding at very low cost. So the very source that told us you're going to see 187 million people flooded if we do nothing also said, but if you assume reasonable adaptation, that is what we expect people would do if left by their own devices, you will see not 187 million people flooded, but 305,000 people. So 600 times less, just to give you a sense of context. So we're saying 300,000 people will have to move by the end of the century. Right now, every year, about twice that number move out of California. So it's not like this right. is an unmanageable event for the world. And I think this very clearly sort of focuses the problem that we're facing. The media loves clicks. The media loves, you know, a big bad stories. This is not special for climate. They'll do that in any area because it, you know, it's more fun to read. But that drives us to believe that we've just learned, oh my God, 187 million people are going to get are going to drown, essentially. I think that's what most people took away from it. But the reality is, no, we'll fix this for almost all of them. And 305,000 people, half of what's going to move out of New York in 2020, sorry, out of California, will have to relocate. That's yeah. a problem, not the end of the world. That's right. Adaptation. Well, I thought of a fun example of that since you mentioned California, you know, Highway 101, the big freeway that goes cut, cuts up through Santa Barbara, where I live and goes north. Well, I find, found a little bike path uh, close to the beach, and I'm riding down this little bike path, and I see uh, dashed yellow lines, and I realize this used to be the coast road about 75 years ago. Now it's, you know, and, and they, but they moved the road inland, you know, because you yep. have, if you have decades to make changes, which we do, um, this is what humans do. We adopt. As they said, uh, we, we didn't leave the Stone Age because we ran out of stones, right? No, <laughs> you know, innovation no. and, and and the point is that leads us, and that, that's what I spend quite a large part of my book on, is walking people through how is it possible that you hear all these end of the world stories, but that the UN climate panel and the leading climate economists tell you that by the 2070s, the cost is going to be equivalent of us losing somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of income. It, it seems incongruous, but it's mainly because we hear the stories without adaptation and the reality, of course, is going to be with adaptation. This is not to belittle climate change. It's still going to be a problem. We'd rather not lose 0.2 to 2%, but we're not losing, as I think many people think in their minds, 50% or something. Right. So it makes it a much more manageable problem. And that's, of course, why you should also make sure that your policies to tackle it are also limited. Uh, you, know, but, but, you, but, you need to make sure you don't you know, cut off your arm in order to but, cure a wrist ache. Yeah, so to put some numbers on this, let's say the average uh, ca per capita GDP in the Western world now is, I don't know, 50000 a year, and in 2100, it'll be 150000 a year, so you triple your your average income in today's dollars, and if we yes. do nothing, and, and worst case scenario, uh, you only make 130000 a year, something like that. I'm just making these numbers up, but approximately yeah. what you had given on percentage-wise. So, although you might say, yeah, that's a problem, but on the bigger picture, we're a lot, lot richer as we as we progress economically and then as you point out you have a long section in the book i really liked of of what it takes to uh solve environmental problems first of all you have to be out of poverty 
You got to have money. You got to care about the environment. And if you don't have three square meals a, a day and a roof over your head, who cares what's going to happen to the climate in a century from now? Yeah. So a lot of my book is also about the world's poor. So I run the Copenhagen Consensus, uh, which is a think tank where we work with uh, a lot of developing countries and saying, look, you have very limited resources. They know what it's like to have really limited resources. You have lots of problems. Where can you spend money and do the most good? Uh, so you know, we're right now working with Ghana. Next uh, year, we're going to do this for Malawi and in Africa. And the whole point here is to recognize that for most poor people, there's a lot of problems. You know, the simple point in, environmentally is that most people around the world suffer from enormous air pollution, but not the air pollution that you and I think about, but indoor air pollution. The fact that you cook and keep warm with dirty fuels, typically wood, cardboard, dung, whatever you can get your hands on. And that means that for about 3 billion people, the indoor air in those huts in the third world countries is about 10 times worse than it is in outdoor Beijing when it's really bad. We have no sense of this, but that's of course, that's what it takes to cook and keep warm. Yeah. We don't think about that because we've electrified our kitchen, we've electrified or, or in other ways, made our heating systems or uh, our, of, of, our, of our homes such that they don't pollute inside. That's, of course, what happens when you're rich. And so in reality, as you just pointed out, you move out of the most important and the most de devastating environmental problem. You get more outdoor air pollution for a while. And then, of course, as you get richer, you start saying, I'd like to vote for politicians who actually make air pollution less bad. And that's what happens almost universally as you get sufficiently rich. And you deal with many other environmental problems. You are not automatically going to deal with climate change because clearly, as we see, as you get richer, you just put out more and more CO2. So that's a real problem. And that's one of the reasons why I argue, well, this is the kind of problem that we need to make sure that we fix. And one of the best ways we can fix that is through innovation. But I think I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I'll get back to that. Point. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, let's just hit, hit some of the easy points here that you hear in the alarmist literature. The polar bears. What's the status of polar yeah. bears? <laughs> So polar bears used to be this very, very iconic figure. We were going to run out of polar bears. Polar bears were essentially going to go extinct. Well, what's actually happened was we used to hunt down polar bears really, really bad. And we stopped that back in the 1960s and 70s. And what we've seen is dramatic increase in the number of polar bears. Again, we have very bad survey uh, back from the 60s and before. We still don't have tremendously good ones. But what I try to show is uh, if you look at the polar bear, uh, 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 and I forget the right now, name, the polar bear group, the ones that do the polar bear uh, statistics, if you actually look at their estimates, although they're very, very worried about cli uh, uh, climate change and polar bears, it's actually never been higher, the number of polar bears. So we're up around 25,000 polar bears today. But the whole idea of saying, but with global warming, it's going to melt some of the polar ice, and that's going to be bad for polar bears. That's a 10 years argument. But what really matters and what I think is fantastically absurd is that we're then saying, all right, let's try to help these polar bears by cutting carbon emissions so that it'll be slightly less ice-free in 100 years at enormous costs. Instead of perhaps starting with the easy thing, right now, every year, we shoot 900 polar bears. Maybe, I, I don't know, maybe we should start with not shooting 900 polar bears. And again, what happens is if you if you stop being, being sort of worried, this is the end of the world, but this is a problem, you can start thinking about what are the smart, easy wins first. 
Again, I'm not saying we shouldn't fix climate change, and I think we should, and we'll get to how you do that. But you also need to get a sense of how are you going to save the polar bears over the next 50 years? Well, first of all, it doesn't look like they need saving right now. But even if you really care about it, stop shooting 900 polar bears every year. Remember, that's 4% we're killing every year. So, I mean, that seems like a good first start. Yeah. What about the so-called sixth extinction we're supposedly living through? So I, I haven't actually looked at that. I know uh, 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 one of my other authors, uh, Schellenberger, he's looked at that. Yeah. Uh, this is not my this is not my game. So I, okay. I, I have him, I have him coming on uh, in a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, deforestation, reforestation. I think people will be surprised by the numbers in your book that the earth is actually getting greener. Yes. And, and this is one of the things that we are also very bad at dealing with because we're constantly hearing about all the bad things that happen with climate change. We fail to recognize that, like any other phenomenon, it has both pluses and minuses. There are both upsides and downsides to global warming. Look, the downsides are bigger than the upsides. That's why it's a problem overall. But one of the upsides is actually that it leads to more green on the planet. Uh, this is simply because uh, CO2 is a fertilizer. Uh, as you may know, if you know any commercial uh, uh, greenhouse growers, they'll typically put in extra CO2 into their greenhouses in order to get more plump tomatoes. And what we've done on the world basis is actually make the world a lot greener. So we've actually seen an increase in the area of the world that is green. And this is a complicated measure, but let's just go with it and say they've seen 4% reduction in some places, but they've seen a tremendous increase so that net we've actually seen an increase of a size equivalent to two times the continental US. Wow. That's a phenomenal. How come over the last 25 years, we've seen so much more green and we don't talk about it? Well, it's because obviously it doesn't fit into the narrative. Again, this does not mean that global warming doesn't have more problems than it has solutions, but we can't make good decisions if we only hear the bad sides. And, um, and some of that and is another, from 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 right. planting uh, new trees too, right? Uh, yes. So so especially China has also planted uh, uh, a lot of forest. What happens? And and you alluded to that earlier. When you get rich, you move to cities, and so you actually get much more effective agriculture, and so you need less land, and that's why you start replanting, start making more green because. Now, land is not, agriculture is not the most valuable thing to you. Often it is to have the forest where your kids can go out and play. So you get these local and nearby forests that increases life quality immensely. A again, we fail to appreciate that making people rich, making people prosperous, often lead to much better environmental outcomes locally. Again, it yeah. doesn't fix climate yeah. change, but it does fix a lot of problems. I think it was the Weyerhaeuser Corporation in Washington State that plants more trees than they cut down. So in a way, having a, a kind of a, a, a proprietary interest in keeping a forest healthy uh, is a, another solution. You know, they don't want to cut down every last tree just to make a buck because then their you know, long-term profits will go down. And, of course, the rebuttal to that is, well, we shouldn't be making profits on things like trees anyway. Well... You know, and this gets back to this, what I call the beautiful people myth, you know, long, long ago. And, uh, you know, people used to live in perfect harmony with their environment. Well, we now know that Native Americans deforested vast swatches of the United States long before uh, Europeans huh. got here. 
this is what humans do. They modify their environment to improve their lives and survive. Yeah, and, and, and when you're both poor and have very little and there are very few people, you actually modify it a lot, which is what both Native Americans did in, 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 uh, in the U.S. We also saw that in Australia and many other places. So so again, what you have to remember, I think another rebuttal to the uh, the plantation argument is that but these are all, you know, it's a monoculture. You just have one kind of tree. Yeah. And that's true. But remember, plantations are a very, very small part of the total amount of forests. And mostly we actually get our wood from those plantations because we've set them up to make them very easy. And that relieves the pressure on rest of nature. So you can get all of your, uh, last time I checked, and I'm not sure this is not an up-to-date number, uh, about 3% of the uh, of the world's forests were plantations. But we get about half of all our uh, uh, wood material from those plantations. And that means we leave much of the rest of nature much more undisturbed. And that's mm -hmm. the real argument that we have to get to, to grips with, that sometimes it's a good idea to have high yield agriculture, because that means you can leave more space for nature. Yeah, we're never going back 10,000 years to a population of 1 million humans in the entire globe. That's not going to happen. Although I think there are some environmentalists that, that don't like people and would not, not mind seeing that. But uh, and, and again, I, I, I think that that point is well taken. But my understanding is most people who are engaged in this in this conversation are not those people who are saying right, right. we only want a million people but there is that sense in which there's too many people and we should do something about it uh, and, and and you know the, the the saying goes that typically the the in the intuition in that is there's too many of you and just enough of me right. <laughs> uh it's unclear of who it is it should go but of course in the long run what we fix that with is prosperity uh right. by getting better education to women, better opportunities for women uh, to engage in, in business. It means that women start having much fewer kids because they can decide themselves. And so we end up in a world where we'll have many fewer kids and eventually we'll probably have a stable, even a slightly declining uh, population. But again, we need to remember that it's not such that this world with uh, uh, almost 8 billion people is a much, much worse world than one with just 1 billion. Because back when we were 1 billion, we pretty much, none of us could read. We right. you know, lived to, uh, to about 30 uh, years on average. Today, we live 70 to 72 years on average. We have much, much better indicators in almost all parts because being wealthy, being prosperous, actually help you deal with many of your problems. Okay, uh, address this. Uh, we only have 10 years to to survive that AOC and Greta Thunberg are pushing. Where did they get this number and what does it really mean? So what happened was uh, the back in 2015 uh, at the Paris Agreement, uh, a lot of politicians decided we could uh, promise only to uh, limit the temperature rise to 1.5 degrees centigrade, uh, which translates to 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, that number is entirely made up, as you can tell, because it's just a it's a round number. It's you know it's a, a nice round small number that you could say this sounds good. I really care about the environment. One thing to know is there's no way we can do this. Uh, pretty much nobody believes that that's actually mm. achievable. But what they said was, all right, given that we promised it, we should perhaps have someone look into what would that take to get to 1.5 degrees. That was what they asked the UN climate panel. And that was the report that came out in 2018 that basically said, if you're going to try this incredibly ambitious target, you have to basically change your entire uh, economic system and you got to do it before 2030. 
So that was where the 12 years came from. Mm. We basically got to do everything for, in 12 years or we're not going to make the 1.5 degree target. Now, a lot of newspapers, not surprisingly, CNN and many others made this into we have 12 years to save the planet. It, it, it's not, a, you know, it's not a terrible shortcut by and I can see why, you know, that made uh, the copy editors really happy. But it makes it incredibly wrong because it basically saying, what will it take to do something that's almost unachievable? It'll take something almost unachievable. Let me give you a, 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 a comparison, because I think this is really a good comparison to the challenge that we're up against. If you look at, at uh, traffic fatalities in the U.S., Right now, about 40,000 people die in traffic every year. Uh, one way, you know, a lot of politicians typically say that number should be zero. And, and you know, that's a good, that's a nice in, uh, intention. If you asked traffic researchers, how do I get to zero? One simple answer, and I think probably the only realistic one would be to say, lower the speed limit to three miles an hour. <laughs> if right. we have three miles an hour everywhere, nobody will die in traffic, except maybe from boredom, right? <laughs> but the idea, of course, is to recognize that that also have cost. That's why we don't have a three miles per hour uh, speed limit. We all recognize that you shouldn't just be allowed to you know, go whatever, 200 miles an hour or whatever uh, on the freeway. So we have a national conversation. Should it be 55 miles or should it be 85 miles? That conversation is rational, but that recognizes that there's a trade-off between on the one side, 40,000 people dying, and on the other hand, that we have an integrated economy that we can get stuff from A to B, that we can have a continental-sized economy in the US, that I can go and visit my parents or my loved ones, and I can go on vacation, and we can do a lot of other things. That also has value, and we balance those two by saying, should it be 85 or 55? Right. But we never say three miles an hour. Unfortunately, in the climate conversation, it seems like we've we've caught ourselves up to say the only right number is basically that climate should not change. But the reality, of course, is we're not changing climate because we want to be bad people. We're changing it inadvertently because we burn fossil fuels that deliver an enormous amount of good to people. You know, so fu fundamentally, it gives you heat and cold and, and uh, food and transportation and all the other things that make life worth living, which is why most of the developing world wants the same thing. We're trying to weigh those two things up against each other, just like we are with the traffic deaths. And the right answer is not to let everything just go. So that's also why I say we should have limits to what we emit of CO2, but also to recognize the right answer is not zero. And that's why when people come and tell you we have uh, uh, 12 years and now it's 10 years and Biden just uh, 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 last week said uh, nine years. Right. But but <laughs> fundamentally, when when you talk about these very, very short time limits, you're really just doing what we've done for a very, very long time, uh, saying if we don't fix this within the next couple of years, we're all going to be dead. But of course, as you run out of all those uh, 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 markers, eventually people start losing faith in you right? yeah. back in the uh, 80s. The UN actually told us that if we didn't fix global warming and a lot of other environmental problems, the outcome would be as severe as a global nuclear exchange by the year 2000. Right. And of course, didn't happen. Right. So again, we need to get a sense of proportion and we need to get ourselves, you know, sort of that breathing space and say, yeah, it's a problem, not the end of the world. Yeah. The other problem with that is then when those uh, predictions are spectacularly wrong people on the right say conservatives that that uh you know are super pro free market think aha you see they they were so 
badly wrong, we shouldn't do anything because anything they say yeah. is going to be wrong. And therefore, you, you, you end up a polarized extreme in the other direction. Uh, I think one and of the biggest mistakes was wrong too, right? So yeah, yep. was Al, Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth, made climate a left-wing liberal cause because he was the vice president of the Democratic Party. So, um, so conservatives who then encounter any kind of climate science think, well, that's an Al Gore left-wing liberal thing. I have to be against that, and that sort of shuts that door to open dialogue about reasonable uh, solutions. Yeah, and 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 look again. I'm, I come from Europe, uh, and and we're much more sort of everyone is convinced. Yes, it's a problem. So I really only have to fight the the other side. The it's the end of the world, and people running around being really scared. But you should definitely also say the people who say this is not happening at all. They're not right. It is a problem. It is yeah. a human made problem. It is something we should challenge. But I think a lot of the people, as you also point out, a lot of the people who are really saying I don't believe the science are saying, I don't believe what you tell me the science implicates in terms of policy. And there, they're much more right. Yeah. Because if what you're saying is, there's a problem. Yeah, okay. So we got to tax everything and we basically got to degrowth the economy and all that stuff. No, that does not follow. And actually, there's good reasons to believe that that would make the world much, much worse off. You need to find out what are the right policies. And that's really what I try to lay out in the book. Yeah. I was at that TED conference in 2006 in Monterey when Al Gore gave his uh, Inconvenient Truth lecture. This was before the film came out. And he was something else. He was on fire. He was like doing stand up on stage. He was funny, animated, a great storyteller. And of course, a lot of us were thinking, where was this guy during the election against Bush? Uh, but this is the power of a good storyteller and a, particularly a film like that that can really move people. Uh, hmm. And yet I, I've also talked to people that are, uh, you know, worried about nuclear weapons and, and, and they produce these spectacular documentaries like, oh, my God, this is the thing that we have to worry about. And then you you, you, yeah. you, you talk to the AI apocalypse people and, oh, my God, they're making an incredibly good argument. And all of a sudden, you know, you don't even want to leave the house because it seems like disaster is looming. So but you're also up against, you know, great storytellers on the other side. Fortunately, you're a great storyteller, as is Michael Schellenberger. And because you are also, well, you're a vegan, and and so and, and Schellenberger was a a vegetarian, but yeah, a, a vegetarian. Okay, only, only vegetarian. Oh, okay, only vegetarian. Uh, so I mean, it's not like you guys are, you know, right wing, you know, Sean Hannity, get, you know, watching, you know, Fox News people. Um, so that helps because it, it's almost like um, when I I like to cite um, Francis Collins, head of the National Institutes of Health. Uh, because he's a born-again Christian and completely accepts evolutionary science. So I can say, don't listen to me or Richard Dawkins. Listen to your guy. He's on your team. Yeah. So it's almost like a team sport. We've become so polarized. We, we certainly have these markers up in our head who are good people and who are bad people. And, and I think, uh, well, thank you very much for, for saying that I'm a good storyteller. I think it's a much harder story that I'm trying to tell. Because in some way, I'm trying to say, you got to thread the, the needle and walk down the middle path. You know, it's very hard. On the one hand, you could easily veer into saying, oh, it's not happening at all. Or on the other side, you could veer in and say, this is the end of the world. And it's just much more fun to be on the end of the world because right. you, you, know, you get to make much great, greater headlines. And also, I think there's a big part of this that is really just about saying, I'm working to save the world. Right. That obviously works for politicians, right? I mean, politicians get... To promise to say this could uh, endanger you and your family, this could eradicate the planet as you know it. 
but I'm going to save you. Vote for me. That's a wonderful play. But even just as a person, you know, you get to be part of that movement that saved the planet. How cool is that? Yeah. Whereas what I'm trying to do is to say, look, there are a lot of different challenges. We have to tackle all of them. We're going to do dissatisfactorily on all of them because we don't have enough resources. So let's make sure we do some on this, some on this, some on this, and some on climate and some of all these other things. That's going to in, inherently going to feel you know, a lot less sexy and a lot yeah. less fun, but it's a lot more realistic. And of course, that's what we try to show with our models. It will deliver much, much greater benefits because you will save a lot of people in each one of these areas instead of saving just people, for instance, on climate and mostly forgetting all the other. And again, I'm not saying that that's what most people want to do. Yeah. Uh, we all want to be good in all of these areas. But if you focus most of your time and attention on one issue, obviously you're going to over-represent that both in investment and political attention and everything else. And everything else will languish a little bit on the backsides of of, of, uh, of, of New York Times or where, whatever you read. Yeah, most progress in all of uh, the human condition happens incrementally, slowly, gradually over decades. You don't see it. There's no camera crew, you know, there w watching the, <laughs> the equivalent of the building coming down of it going back up. Um, and, you know, this is the problem Pinker's always faced with, uh, you know, documenting these long term decades long or even centuries long trends. They're not sexy. It's not fun. It's more fun to go out and and march and demand, you know, defund the police, get rid of the police. Wait, no, wait. How about we just have slow, gradual uh, reform within police departments? That's not sexy. <laughs> you know, yeah. how, how do you march yeah. for that? Yeah. And, and look, this is this is the challenge about being tr trying to be a, a realist and trying to be honest about that. We face a lot of different challenges. But I think one thing and, and I actually show that in the in the introduction of the book, uh, when the U.N. Uh, wanted to set their next set of targets back in 2015 uh, for the world, they went out and asked people. Uh, so about 10 million people across the world uh, said, what would you like us to prioritize? And they gave them 16 different options. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they were all very excited in, at the UN. And now you almost can't find it. I show you where you can find it, but they sort of hit it in a, in a, a dead link kind of place because it mm. didn't give the right answer. What people obviously said was, I want to make sure that I have health that my kids don't die from easily curable infectious diseases, that we get good education, that we get good jobs, that we don't have corruption, and that we have nutrition. Those are the top five outcomes. At the very end, number 16 of 16 was climate. <laughs> and this is not because people don't care about climate. It's just simply because when you're asked, would you rather focus first on making sure your kids survive or on climate change? They obviously say, I'd like to have my kids survive. And I actually think it's not just a factor of how you ask the question. It's also how much can we spend a dollar and help you save your kid? How much can we help uh, through investing a dollar and cut, cutting uh, tons of CO2? Can we help your kids and especially your kids' descendants? And it turns out we can just help so much more with many of the dollars, not on all things. We can also waste them really, really yeah, well on yeah. some of these other things. But fundamentally, we can just do a lot more good there. This is hard, but this is important if we actually want to make sure we leave the planet a better place. I always like that Thomas Sowell's definition of economics is the allocation of limited resources that have other uses. 
you know, it's not like That's there's very li- good- unlimited free stuff. <laughs> Actually, yes. uh, Joe Rogan, when Joe Rogan had uh, Elon Musk on his podcast, um, e- Elon went off on a riff about stuff. He says, these fools out here think that there's an unlimited amount of stuff. If people don't make stuff, there's no stuff. <laughs> so anyway, that's a little sidetrack. Uh, so the third part of your book, uh, section three, probably the most important, what can we do about it? So you have your non-solutions and your solutions. So the non-solutions part, are, it, it starts off with individual action. I want to feel like I can do something. So I'm going to sort my garbage and I'm going to, I'm going to drive an electric. So here's my, here's my contribution to the uh, to the climate problem. <laughs> oh, you're sitting in your garage. Yeah, I'm in How my cool. garage with my Tesla. Now, I just want you to know that I have it plugged into the wall where the electricity ferry gives me free electricity. <laughs> okay, so there you go. Uh, obviously, we all know that you know the the electricity filling up my Tesla battery comes from a coal powered uh, station up in Northern California or something like that, right? So, what can individuals do? Why is there that trade off? Are things like electric cars and, and things like that going to matter or just matter a tiny bit or it's a complete waste of time and money? Yeah. So the short answer is it's going to do very little. And and of course, this feel really bad because you want to feel like your actions have a big effect. But the honest answer is no, most of what you do will change very little. And of course, the best example of that is the corona crisis. Hmm. We've just shut down the world. Yeah. And it had almost no impact. So the impact by the end of the century from the whole shutdown of the world, both what we've already seen and what we'll probably see in the second half when we get the second wave across the world, will reduce temperatures by the end of the century by one five hundredth of one degree Fahrenheit. Unbelievable. So when you think about it, when China was the most shut down in March, they actually, on that, I think it was the 17th of March, they still produced 78% of what they normally do of mm. CO2. Mm. So we we have this idea, oh, if you just fly a little less and and, right. and you know drive a little less and stuff, you're you're good. Well, no, it, it will do a little bit. And by all means do that. You know, by all means get your electric car. Uh, although I try to point out that us subsidizing an electric car, <laughs> uh, you you've just got what ten thousand dollars plus some extra from California. Yep, uh, yep. Plus you can drive in the uh, uh, in the uh, carpool lane, lane yeah, and yeah. Uh, you also get free charging at many places and all kinds of stuff. That's mostly a gift to rich people. Right. I'm sorry, I don't know how rich you are, but I, I doubt that you're. You know, uh, I'm a uh, middle class guy, but yeah, no, t- t- totally, yeah, we get a it, lot of subsidies. It, it, it goes to it. Uh, you know, almost all of that goes to the top quart- quartile of of the U.S. Yeah, and even if you do all this, your electric car is going to save about twelve. 10 tons of CO2 over its lifetime compared to an, uh, a gasoline-driven car uh, of the same kind. Uh, and what that means is we could have bought that on the on the, uh, uh, on the the uh, uh, carbon exchange so we could basically make sure some other uh, uh, electricity plants had cut the same amount of CO2 for about $50. Hmm. So the net worth the, uh, the net worth of your entire 10-year Tesla adventure is worth about 50 bucks. We could have <laughs> cut that by just spending right. 50 bucks in the red gear somewhere else. But instead, we gave you $10,000. And of course, you drive around and feel really good about yourself. <laughs> right. So chances are, we also know that you will then engage in other less good activities. So we know when people do something good for the environment, they'll typically say, oh, now I've done something. So they'll buy more red meat or they'll do something else that actually pollutes more. You know, the obvious thing is you'll take a trip extra uh, because, right. you know, 
you've deserved it. So you go to you know, Mexico or something. <laughs> right. The, the, the idea here is to recognize we're not going to solve global warming through individual action. Yeah. It's all fine. Please do it. You know, I'm vegetarian, as you mentioned before. Um, people will tell you that going vegetarian will cut yeah. an enormous amount of your CO2 emissions. Unfortunately, it's a fairly large part of your food budget. But what it'll actually do is about 4% of your total emissions. And because going vegetarian is actually cheaper, you will spend yeah. more money elsewhere, which will also lead to more emissions. So overall, your emission uh, will probably be about 2% reduced. That is the equivalent of about half a ton of CO2. Uh, so you could have avoided all of that for about $3. Again, you could pay $3 a year and eat all the meat you want. Again, I'm not saying, don't, you know, I'm vegetarian because I don't want to kill animals. I think it's fine. But let's not have this idea that that's what's going to solve global warming. Right, right, right. So let's hit the, the ones that will carbon tax, innovation, adaptation, geoengineering, prosperity. Can I just, yeah. can I, can I just mention uh, the other big thing, which is the Paris Agreement? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's hit that. Yeah, that, you, that, you have a good obviously on is that. The, the thing everybody's talking right, about is right. the thing that Trump wanted to take uh, the U.S. out of. So obviously it must be good. Uh, and Biden is also promising to to get back in. This has become the thing that will really save the world. And that's how many people talk about it. If you actually look, the UN did its own estimate once. They've never done it again because clearly that was not the right answer again. Uh, they found what is the actual impact of all the promises of the Paris Agreement. And they found until 2030, we will reduce our carbon emissions about 63 tons. Uh, sorry, 63 gigatons as a billion tons. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean anything to anyone who's not, you know, deeply inside all of those books. But what that means is it's essentially 1% of what we need to cut if we want to get to 1.5 degrees. So politicians, if they were actually going to do everything they promised, they have only done 1%. They mm. basically have to do a Paris agreement every year, not just this year and then in 2030 and then on. No, 2020, 2021, they have to do the whole thing. And of course, we're not anywhere near that. And of course, we're not actually living up to what we're promising in Paris. So what we're seeing here with Paris is Paris will probably cost somewhere between one and two trillion dollars a year. That's one to two percent of global GDP. So it's not the end of the world, but it's certainly a, a, a substantial amount of money that could have been spent on doing a lot of other good things. And it will reduce temperatures by the end of the century by something that's almost immeasurable. If we keep doing it through the century, so spending you know, 50 to $100 trillion, we will end up cutting temperatures by about 0 0.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. This is incontrovertible. This is not something because it's run on UN models, it's based on US numbers. So the whole point here is to recognize the current approach that we're trying is phenomenally expensive and does fairly little good. If you actually try to estimate it, for every dollar we spend, we will avoid about 11 cents of climate damage. And that's what I'm trying to say. You know, let's stop spending money badly on climate just because we're scared witless. Let's start talking about how do we do it smartly? And that gets to, sorry, your question. Yeah, well, but 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 the point on, on make another point on that, that these agreements like Kyoto and Rio and all that, it's kind of a virtue signaling to other nations. Okay, we're, we're on board. We're good people. And and then, as you point out, many of them just ignore it anyway, not just the United States, but yes. other countries. They either can't do anything yes. about it 
or they don't want so, to. So, it, uh, uh, you know, uh, back in Rio in 1992, uh, all rich countries promised to cut their carbon emissions to 2000 level, uh, sorry, to 1990 level by the year 2000. And Bill Clinton famously excused it for saying, well, the economy is just going so well. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, I think, I think that's, that's a, that's a fair argument for saying, you know, yes, you want to virtue signal, but if it comes at, at a cost of actually losing some of your, uh, your, uh, your growth rate, yeah, most people don't want to do that actually. And, and I think that's a fair argument, but we need to recognize then that as we look ahead, we're not going to change that. It's not like we're going to dramatically somehow magically now start really taking it seriously and change the yeah. entire economy, which of course is also why when countries are promising to go carbon neutral, you know, Biden is promising this for 2050. And now there's sort of a competition who can come up with the, the date that's closest to now. Um, it's very, very unlikely to happen. Remember the first country to promise us was actually New Zealand. They promised back oh, in right. 2008 right. that they were going to go carbon neutral by 2020. Well, it's 2020. How did they do? Well, they're actually at 131% of what they used to be. <laughs> so they they not only failed to cut, they actually increased their emissions. But of course, undeterred, they've now said, but now we're going to promise <laughs> it for 2050. Right. Uh, and, and so I think we need to recognize that unless we dramatically innovate, we're not going to get to those uh, targets and then they just become this virtue signaling, but expensive virtue signaling because yeah. you can still see, you know, EU and many other countries and also the US and some extent spend a lot of resources subsidizing inefficient solar and wind to showcase we're we, we're not just making these points. We're actually trying. We're we, yeah, we're not doing it all that well, but we're trying. Uh, you know, so you end up spending uh, uh, certainly half a trillion or so a year and then some more on on lost economic growth. And yet you managed to do almost nothing to climate. Yeah. That is, in some ways, the worst of all worlds. I thought your calculations on malaria were great. You can you know, try to reduce carbon emissions so we uh, keep, keep the temperatures down and save however X many people in a century from now. Or you can spend a tiny fraction of that amount of money and buy mosquito nets and save no. the people right and, now. And again, this is not to say that climate doesn't affect a lot of people in a lot of different ways. But when people, for instance, make the argument that but climate is going to make malaria worse, they fail to remember that what really makes malaria bad is right now poverty. And yeah. so if you want to help people, you should help them now. And what we expect to happen is that by the end of the century, almost nobody's going to have malaria. Why? Because we'll be so rich that nobody will want to have malaria. Once you get past two or $3,000 per person per year, you stop having malaria because you have sufficient capacity in your healthcare system. And because you're so rich that you will buy the antimalarial medications when you get it or even the prevention uh, to make sure you don't get it in the first place. So we fail to remember, and this is sort of a rebound of the 187 million people flooded. We fail to remember that when you do prosperity, you fix many of the problems that you worry about. Not all right. of them, but many right. of them. Right. Right. So explain the carbon tax, how it works and, and uh, why that's a good solution. So a carbon tax is simply a way of saying right now in many countries, there's no carbon tax on, on anything. So you basically, you burn fossil fuel in some way, you emit the CO2, but you don't take that into your personal account. Did I, was it, you know, was it almost not non-essential for me or was it really, really good for me? By putting a carbon tax on, you make the market economy more efficient because you make you think about your emissions and say, are they worth the damage that they're going to cause in the future. 
And so you reduce your emissions when they're not worth that. Right. And that's exactly how a market economy should work. That's what any climate economist would say. You should have the right carbon tax that reflects the damage cost. And Nordhaus, he's a professor at Yale University. He's been working on this for 30 years. He's basically set up the whole area. He got the Nobel Prize in 2018 on climate economics. He's the only climate economist to ever get the Nobel Prize. And he has done his model, but many other models show approximately the same thing, that we should have a carbon tax of about $20 per ton of CO2 across the world right now. That is equivalent to about 18 cents on a, a, a gallon of gasoline. So it's not nothing, but it's not the end of the world either. Um, of course, you can have a lot of conversation about, are everyone going to do this? Are they going to be honest about it? And also, are politicians going to stop at 20? Or mm. are they just going to crank it up? And I think those are all reasonable arguments. We know that it should crank up over the century. So we we end up at about a dollar by the end of the century. But what you obviously could worry about is that politicians are just going to take that as a free lunch and just you know crank it up right away. Also, one of the things that are important is that once you do a carbon tax, you should cut all other subsidies. So you should cut subsidies to solar and wind because you've just made them more competitive because the fossil fuels have to pay a carbon tax, solar and wind don't. Uh, you should also cut the uh, regulation like the renewable obligations and all these other things. And again, are politicians going to do that? Often they don't. So there's a lot of conversations that you can have about is this realistic? But the point that I try to make is you should have a moderate carbon tax as a goal, but you should also recognize this is only going to solve a fairly small part mm. of the climate problem. And you need to make sure that politicians don't go off on it, right? One of the things that you should remember, I forgot to say that, is that you should then lower other taxes, uh, much more distortionary taxes like income taxes. That would be a good way, especially if you do that for poor people, you'll actually have both a, a health benefit, you'll have a social benefit, and you'll have a more uh, productive benefit while you're then taking in uh, the uh, the taxes from a carbon yeah. tax. And stuff. Uh, wind and solar, <clears throat> what are the numbers on that? This idea that if we could re replace all fossil fuels with wind and solar and other renewables, then then we'll be fine. Is that even remotely possible? Certainly not now. I mean, people will tell you that, for instance, wind and solar is now competitive with fossil fuels. And what they're doing is they're saying when the wind is blowing, wind can actually produce energy just as cheaply as coal. That's true. But of course, we don't just want our computers to work when the wind is blowing or the sun is shining. We want them to work when they're not. Right. And of course, when the wind is not blowing, wind energy is infinitely expensive. Mm. And likewise with sun when the sun is not there. So the reality is you need some sort of backup power. A lot of what happens right now is you basically have solar and wind use the existing backup technology and paying them pretty poorly for it. Uh, and and thereby looking like they're sustainable. But of course, that's not sustainable in the long run because most uh, coal-fired power plants, nuclear power plants, uh, and gas plants will either charge really exorbitantly if they can only run uh, at night when the wind is not blowing kind of thing. Uh, and, and, and often they just simply are not competitive and then they're going to go out. And then we have to subsidize them by saying, no, please stay on the grid because we need you when the sun is not shining <laughs> and, the, and the wind is not blowing. Just to give you a sense of proportion, if you add on batteries, it becomes a lot more expensive. Mm. Again, we can envision that at some point they will be competitive with fossil fuels, but they're nowhere near that right now. Yeah. And, and again, to get you a sense of proportion, right now, the US has enough storage capacity to store 
17 seconds of U.S. energy. <laughs> and of course, what we need is not just to get us over a night and even a week where the wind stands still, but typically seasons. We're yeah. just nowhere near how much we need in order to be based mostly on, on uh, renewables. I think renewables can be part of the solution, but I, I doubt that they're going to be the majority yeah. part of the, yeah. uh, of the solution. And they're certainly not right now. Yeah, I don't have one of Elon's wall-sized batteries in my garage to store my non-solar panels that I don't have. Um, but no. but what about nuclear? It, it seems like that's such an obvious solution. But here you're going up against a lot of psychological variables. I think uh, you know a toxin poison that you can't see or smell or touch, and 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 then people throw up you know Chernobyl and 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 Fukushima. And and so forth. It just seems like there's a huge hurdle there politically and psychologically. Yes. So nuclear uh, has all, all of these problems. They, it, it simply has bad image. Uh, but the reality is, if you look at how much do different forms of energy kill you, nuclear is one of the safest by any standard. And coal, obviously, because it has lots of pollution, especially if you don't regulate it, has lots of death. So really, you should not be concerned about nuclear for that reason. The, the reason why I'm not, you know, gung-ho arguing for, for nuclear, I'm actually saying we don't have the solutions right now. Nuclear, obviously, is a baseload power. It can give you power 24-7, which is one of the great attractions, and it emits no CO2 or virtually no CO2. But the problem is that right now, nuclear, especially in developed countries, is very expensive. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's but basically it's expensive more expensive because than, of the so, regulatory state yes. that... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think that's an entirely fair argument to say that it's just too safe nuclear. Right. But, but I just don't see that changing. You know, it, yeah. it seems to me to be wishful thinking to say to people, look, nuclear is too safe. Let's make it a little less safe. Yeah. That's just that's right. a non-starter. Right. Right. So so the reality is and, and that's, of course, what what most people arguing for this. So Bill Gates and many others are spending money on the fourth generation nuclear, which is basically right. modular nuclear that you can build in a factory and assemble like Lego. Uh, and, and you know, they're inherently safe and they're small and easy and all that stuff. What they're telling us is fourth generation is going to be incredibly safe, incredibly cheap, and it'll basically solve global warming. I think we should definitely invest in those guys because we want to have that lottery ticket. But we should also just be aware that was what they told us about the other three generations, right? Mm. I mean, we were told mm. that nuclear would be too cheap to meter, and it turned out that it was actually pretty darn expensive. So, again, it's not like we have a solution right now. If we had a solution to climate change, we would be doing it already. Right. So the idea here is to say solar and wind is too expensive and too unreliable. Nuclear, too expensive. Most of the other solutions, you know, fish, sorry, fusion, obviously, is still 20 years or 30 years away. But the yeah. point is, there are lots of great ideas out there. And what I show, and this is really not my work, we work with 27 of the world's top climate economists and three Nobel laureates to look at where can you spend resources and do the very most good. What they found was invest in green energy research and development. If we can innovate the price of new green energy down below fossil fuels, we've won. Yeah. We've solved global yeah. warming. If we can make technology that's cheaper than fossil fuels, but doesn't emit CO2, it's over because everyone, not just rich, well-meaning Americans, but everyone, the Chinese, the Indians, the Latin America, everybody else will switch. Not only will that mean we solve global warming, but we will also have a cheaper energy source, which, of course, will be an incredible boon for 
societies around the world to have better living uh, standards. So this is, in some sense, a no-brainer, but we don't spend very much on it. We've actually seen declining levels of spending on green energy R&D. Why? Because for most politicians, when you stand up and say, the end is coming and I'm going to save you, it is much more fun to you know be the guy to reveal the next solar panel factory right, or right. the next wind uh, turbine park, rather than saying I fund a lot of eggheads and yes they haven't come up with anything but they're really working. That just doesn't sell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But again, the so- the solution to climate change is not about cutting carbon emissions this year or next year. It's about cutting the cumulative amount that we emit over the 21st century. And that's much, much more about technology. So if, if you'll just allow me, we'll just want yeah. one little story, right? Because if you think about this, if you think back to the 1970s, I remember, you know, uh, uh, the, you know, the poverty crisis that we saw in Africa and in India and people worried about they wouldn't be able to you know, survive. There are too many kids and too little food. Uh, and and you know, I remember my mom telling you, uh, me that I should not eat so much and we should send some of it down to Africa. <laughs> I never quite got how that actually works. But, but you know, the whole idea of saying, we should do with less here. We should send some of that food down there for those poor people so they can actually survive. But of course, that never works. You can't tell people, I'm sorry, could you do with less? Right. And then you know, send it to those people. What did work was the green revolution. It was technology. It was the fact that we came up with technologies that produce a lot more food for every acre uh, that you grow food on so that these people themselves not only could actually start feeding themselves, but could start feeding themselves so well that they could stop all working in agriculture and start doing industry and uh, and service and move to cities and start their development. So now today, India, you, know, you talked about Paul early, he pre- you know predicted that we were going to see massive hunger catastrophes back in the eight, uh, 70s and 80s. Instead, we actually have an India that now is a major, the world's biggest exporter of rice because <laughs> They now have the technology. So if you make grains that are cheaper, better producing than the thing you have before, everyone will will use them. That's the solution we should do for global warming. If we make the technology that'll work cheaper and better, everyone will buy it. Yeah, I was glad to see Norman Borlaug finally get his his due credit over the last couple of years, because um, yeah. you know he he worked in, in in pretty pretty much isolation and and no one knew who he was through through all those decades when he was making those changes. Not just him, but he I, and his I think team. You probably, unfortunately, have to say that Borlaug got the Nobel Prize exactly for the Green Revolution. He's one of the leaders of of that yeah. revolution, yeah. and nobody unfortunately knows his name. Yeah. Hmm. Let's talk about some of the other crazy geoengineering ideas, like let's spew particles in the upper atmosphere to block the sun. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, so 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 I, I make two other points. We should do adaptation. We've talked about that. That's just an obvious thing. Uh, and then we should look at, but not use geoengineering. So geoengineering is essentially the idea that you can set the thermostat of the planet. Uh, so we know that you can affect the temperature of the planet uh, from Mount Pinatubo, uh, yeah. a, 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 a volcano in the Philippines that blew in 1991. It spewed a lot of sulfur dioxide in the upper stratosphere, and it basically blocked out a little bit, just about 2% of sunlight for about a year. And it cooled the planet for about two years, one degree Fahrenheit. So we know this works and nature does it all the time. The idea is if we try to do something similar, could we actually turn down this thermostat so it doesn't feel like we have climate change? In principle, we can. The trick here is to recognize we don't know what's lurking out of the edges of this. This could go very, very bad. So mm-hmm. certainly we want to research it more. 
The reason why I'm arguing it is partly because it's the only thing that we can do if we want to do something fast. If we, for instance, started seeing the West Antarctic uh, slipping into the uh, uh, in, into the ocean, which would lead to very high sea level rises, the only way we can turn that around fast would be through geoengineering. Anything what we do with climate policies or normal climate policies, you know, take half a century and really only give a big impact in 100, 200 years. This could work in a couple of weeks or in a couple of days. So this really has the potential for us to be an insurance plan. At the same time, it is also likely because it's so cheap. So, you know, one of our proposals actually shows that you could probably avoid all of global warming for about $9 billion in the 21st century. Remember, that's about 10,000 times cheaper than anything else we're talking mm. about. That means that it's not implausible to imagine a rich billionaire or even just a very motivated NGO to actually do this, you know, for the benefit of mankind. But if it turns out that there's something really bad about it, we certainly want to know before they start. So we should know both because it's a good idea for us to know, but also to make sure that if other people start getting good ideas, at least they know whether this is going to work out or not. Yeah. Well, your final solution, uh, prosperity, um, I think is another one of these hot button politicized issues. It, it feels like Oh, you rich people just want to be richer and 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 sell us not rich people that this is the solution to climate change. It, and and it, it, it so you're pushing back against I think a couple of psychological factors here. One of which is it it feels like having too much money and income inequality and all that. Again, that got pushed off the the page in 2020 with the pandemic and and the BLM movement, but that's still lurking there. That, that somehow that is a solution feels like a rich person's solution, and that's not fair to the people that don't have as much. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people who would argue that. I, I actually think it goes the exact opposite way, because for most people that really care about climate change are rich people who already have their second car, who already go on vacations and already have their, you know, their kids don't die from easily curable infectious diseases and all these other things. So it's easy to say, all right, I've pretty much fixed everything else. Now I worry about global warming. But of course, for most people living on terribly small incomes or even below extreme poverty, they need better incomes. They need more prosperity in order to just get out of these terrible things that we couldn't even imagine living under. Uh, so getting prosperity not only means that it's morally good in so many other ways for the world's poor, but it also means that it's actually the most effective way to tackle global warming for most of the world's poor people. Why is that? Well, because if you imagine if you are a poor person in, say, Guatemala, when a hurricane hits Guatemala, like Hurricane Mitch did back in 1998, it kills tens of thousands of people. It basically eradicates the economy. It costs her, uh, 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 them about 30% of their GDP over several years. Whereas if the same hurricane hits a rich Florida, yes, it causes a lot of destruction, but it's a couple percent of Florida's GDP. It kills a few people and people start moving on. If you're rich, if you're prosperous, you can deal with these issues. So the idea here is to say, if we manage to make people more rich, basically pull them out of poverty, it not only helps them with climate change, you know, more ferocious storms in the long run, but it also helps them with all the storms that would be there anyway. And of course, it also helps them with all the infectious diseases that are there, regardless of climate change and all the other challenges. So making sure that you pull people out of poverty not only is a good climate policy, it's also a good moral policy. And 
And to your point on uh, income inequality, it actually lowers income inequality. Because one of the things that happened is that we saw an incredible divergence back from late 1800s in the world between the rich world that just took off and the rest of the world that didn't. What is happening now is as the rest of the world is starting to catch up with us, income inequality globally is actually declining. And because we're going to focus a lot more on, on uh, 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 prosperity over the century, we will probably see a significant decline in income inequality globally. It'll still be a big problem in the US or in Denmark or other places, but it'll be a smaller problem on a global scale. Yeah, I was glad to see you touched on in the book this, um, the, the relationship between uh, income and prosperity and life satisfaction. There was, I don't know, maybe a decade ago or so that's now been debunked, this Easterlin paradox where, you know, once you're above a certain level of income, I think it was like $75,000 a year back then, uh, it, you know, uh, it, levels of happiness of the self-reported happiness of the people that are making the money doesn't go up. So being yeah. rich doesn't make you happier and so on. That That's now been, I, I think, fairly thoroughly debunked. But the other problem with it is that it's not just that I want more money to be happy, like I'm sitting around glowing in my stuff. It's that it gives you more choice and more options and more autonomy and more control over your life against the entropy of nature, which just you know kind of wants to grind, yeah. grind us down. Uh, and that's what poor people really need. It's not that we, we want poor people to be happy. We want them to have more autonomy and power and control. Yeah, we want them to not die uh, <laughs> and their kids yeah. to not die. And, and and I think, again, you're right that people who have $75,000 and move up to $150,000 actually also get more happy. Although I think, you know, when you look at the globe, I'm not all that concerned about those people. They'll probably take <laughs> They'll pretty well fine. care of themselves. Yeah. But I am concerned about the people who only have a couple of thousand dollars or even, you know, as we're working with Malawi, which is one of the poorest countries in the world where they have an average income of about $300 per person per mm. year. Imagine mm. living on that. Mm. I mean, yes, things are cheaper, so it will feel a little better, but not very much. It is terrible in all kinds of ways. And I think it's it's almost inhuman in the way that a lot of people will tell you, the way to fix climate change is by uh, all getting poor. Mm. And, and I understand if you're really rich, you can start making that argument. But for most of the planet, that's just a terrible argument. Not only is it not going to happen politically, because you know, how are you ever going to win an election and saying, I'm going to make all of you poor? But also, and in cr crucially, it's morally wrong. This right. is about right. how do we make sure that we lift people out of poverty, give them opportunities, make sure the kids can be, not only stop dying, but they can get better educated, get better food and actually start becoming much more productive and live that full, fulfilled life that you were talking about and fix climate change. Oh, and fix all the other issues. And that's, of course, the big trick here. If we run around scared, headless, we're not going to fix this. But if we actually listen to the research, we can fix a lot of it. It's not going to feel as good as we talked about, but it is actually going to do a lot more good. Yeah. Yeah, really, if, if we think of it more as a problem-solving set of things to do rather than a moralistic, be-outraged approach, uh, we're going to make more progress. Because most of human progress comes from, you know, solving specific problems right now. You know, not like, I'm going to be outraged and go out and march, and that's going to do something. That's not going to do anything. Uh, you know, we really need to spur innovation uh, to uh, not not just technological, you know, any kind of problem solving. I mean, government is a type of problem solving technology in a way. 
economics is a problem-solving technology. The whole package has to be sort of thought of that way. If I can just riff off on that, because I, I think the, the real challenge here is that we've put ourselves in a situation where we've said CO2, you know, cutting of CO2 is the ultimate moral good. Of course, nobody would actually say that out loud because it sounds silly, but it's kind of what we're trying to do. The best thing you can do for the world is to cut a ton of CO2. It's to you know buy that electric car, or, you know, do the kinds of things that really will help cut a ton of CO2. And I'm always astounded when when you look at poor people whose kids are dying uh, could could die it tonight. That we're saying no, no, you know what? I'm gonna you know I'm gonna uh, bike to work tomorrow instead and help your kids' descendants a tiny, tiny, tiny bit in a hundred years instead of actually helping them now. And and again, I'm not saying that there is a trade-off that we can't, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're adults, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. But what we need to do is to not focus so much on this one solution that we forget all the others. And I think that's where the outrage comes in. If you if you sort of set up your life in saying the the right way to think think about things is how much CO2 did that cut? You're likely to get a very, very bad sense of what will really help the world. Sometimes CO2 is the right thing to cut. Sometimes death from tuberculosis is the right thing to cut. Right. Yes. Well, Bjorn, I want to be mindful of your time. I know you have a bunch of interviews coming up. You're on your book tour. This is, your book just came out. Um, it, just just uh, one big picture reflection. How do you think COVID-19 is going to change the future, both in, in climate science and, and the stuff you do, but also other areas of life? So I think it's it, certainly in, in in my reflection, it'll change us two ways. As as we talk about, it'll actually show us that personal action doesn't do all that much good. You know, this is not about personal action. It's about changing the structure if we want to dramatically reduce uh, CO2. That's why technology is going to be the thing that'll actually yeah. fix climate change. But secondly, uh, I think COVID, and I, I think we know nowhere near the end of this. Uh, yeah. Most people think, oh, you know, it's it's going to be over soon. I, I think it's going to run on for a very long time. And it's going to change the way we think about the world, but particularly in one way, namely that we have just now decided, you know, the, uh, the economists call this the 90% economy. We've decided to give up on, you know, somewhere between five and 10% of our GDP. And we've done so on an incredibly loose argument. You know, we want to save people. So we shut down the economy. We have not had that conversation about how much is it worth to shut down compared to how much is it yeah. worth to save these people. So uh, I think for most rich countries, it's probably a good idea to cut down. Uh, certainly the only period published uh, cost-benefit analysis indicate that it's an okay idea to do. But we did two cost-benefit analyses for poor countries, so from mm -hmm. Ghana and from Malawi, and we've just done one for India, showing that it is vastly more expensive compared to the number of people you're gonna save. Why? Because you're both have uh, uh, much fewer old people in, in these uh, relatively mm. young co uh, countries. So they save a lot fewer people. Uh, they also have much lower healthcare capacity. So even if you lo uh, lower the curve, you can just not lower it down below the capacity because there's almost no capacity. And thirdly, because you're very poor, you have many, many other problems. And so, you know, for instance, for Malawi, we found together with the National Planning Commission there uh, that if you spend, if you lock down Malawi, you're going to cost about, that's going to cost about $12 billion. Remember, Malawi is one of the poorest countries. Mm -hmm. It's almost two times the GDP. You're going to save about 7,000 people. We're using the Imperial College models. 
And, and that's obviously good. But remember, you can save 7,000 people in Malawi for about $3 million. You can save mm. the same number of people for about one four thousandth of the cost. And so our point is simply to say, if your goal is to save 7,000 people, why the hell wouldn't you try to do that incredibly effectively? Or to put it differently, why wouldn't you try to save almost 4,000 times more people? Right. Uh, you can't actually do that because you run out of things to, to save, but there's a lot of other ways you could do this. So I think uh, uh, the COVID crisis will also help us when we step back from this, when we're done with this in a couple of years, to step back and realize this was a place where we had an enormous impact but also an enormous cost. We should probably have been better at weighing those two. Yeah. And I hope that conversation can help us also think about the, the problem that will stay with us for the 21st century, namely climate change. Big problem, big cost. Let's make, make sure we actually weigh those actions so we do the most we can. Yeah, it's a rational approach, like effective altruism. Like, where's the best place to send my yeah. money? I mean, uh, it, it's, it's hard not. to believe it's taken this long uh, to, to actually, for somebody to say, let's actually put some uh, calculations on this and see which is the best charities to support and so on. And, and notice it's still not the main thing that you right. use when you actually dole out the $150 billion we do in, in development aid. You know, part of it for strategic reasons, but part of it also just because uh, uh, aid is still, you know, do good. Yeah. And, and so right. is much of climate. It's right. about how do you feel after we've done this? I tend to believe that, you know, our, our, our uh, kids and grandkids are not actually going to judge us for how well we felt about what we did, but they're <laughs> going to judge us and how well we did on the stuff we did. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. It's almost like a, a yet another human rights, civil rights type movement is the, the f a future unborn people to have a sustainable, livable earth. What's the best way to do that, uh, you know, rationally? Yeah. And and so I, I also like the, the, your discussion in the book about, you know, the, the bigger picture is, um, you know, what can we do to make the world a better place? You know, of which climate is just one of many issues. And the only way to, yeah. to answer that really is using these kind of rational calculations, because, again, we don't have unlimited resources. Yes. And, and again, look, I'm I'm happy with, you know, people will read this book and some will say, Ah, but I think you know, you could weigh this differently and we could be more effective here and we could be less effective here. That's a perfectly fine conversation. We try to use the best models, but we don't know everything and we right, certainly don't right. have the answers to everything in the world. But we do need to have that fundamental conversation about we can't fix all problems, right? Uh, at least not right now. Uh, so let's make sure we fix as many problems as well as we can. And that requires us to stop running around screaming and start, you know, thinking about what did the numbers actually tell us. Well, Bjorn, I hope everybody reads your book. It's a great read. It's a really gripping. The audio book is great too. I, I really enjoyed that. Well, but but it's an important book. More more importantly, it's you know in terms of you know, a rational approach to solving problems to make the world a better place, which we all want. So, thank you for your thank work. You. Thank you for uh, coming on the show, and, and good luck with hey, the book. I, I guess I guess your book tour is all virtual, right? Because no, no it travel. It is all virtual yeah. now, <laughs> which is saving a lot of CO2. You know, this is this is good for the <laughs> this is good for global warming, right? We're all ensconced it in is. our homes. <laughs> yes, yes. I do think yes. I do suspect that uh, the future of business travel, in any case, will be greatly reduced. Because uh, you can do so yeah, much more. I, 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 when I when I talk to people, they're mostly just you know, incredibly cooped up, and they're just looking so much forward to getting out again. Uh, I, I always think of do you, do you remember right after nine eleven? Everybody told us you'll never see another action film with big explosions and right. stuff. 
so so I, I think I think right now, because we're in it, we think, oh, yes, it's going to change the world enormously. Yeah. When we're done with it, we're all just going to try to be back. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> all right, Bjorn. Nice to see you again. Wonderful to yeah, see you again. Stay good Thank there. you very much. All right.